Hello and welcome to The Joy of Marketing with me, Andrew Veach. This week I'm joined by Josh Henshaw from Coniston Capital. Josh and I have actually invested together in a couple of e-commerce businesses and I thought it'd be great to get him on the show just to give a bit of a view about how you should approach that next step when you're ready to raise funding to grow your business. So Josh, welcome to the show. Hi Andrew, thanks for having me. Uh, so just kicking off, I mean within, and obviously I'm just talking here within di- direct-to-consumer, what sectors do you like when you kind of see it on a, on a business plan and what sectors do you think, oh no, this, uh, this isn't going to be one for me? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, so I suppose for me, uh, my kind of key passion, and luckily it's been my focus throughout my time investing, is uh, consumables. So you know that will be your FMCGs, so ready meals, meal kits, uh, flavor pots, uh, pet food, flowers, and the like. And I suppose key reasons I really like those are one, it's consumable, so it lends itself very well to the C proposition, and indeed, if you're going to consume it there's a good need for repeat purchase. But also it's around the occasion that comes with those consumables. So when we think about flowers or meals, for example, you know, I can send a bunch of flowers um, for someone's birthday, for a christening, wedding, graduation. And it goes beyond just becoming a product. It starts to become something that's more emotional than that. And that's really important when building a brand and especially a direct consumer brand to have that direct connection with the consumer. And similarly with sort of, you know, meal propositions, you order your meal box, you cook it for, you know, your family coming over for yourself after a long day at work. And then the ability to then have increased product ranges. So you might do some seasonal stuff around Christmas, you might do some stuff around Easter. And again, it just starts to embed you more into the lifestyle of a consumer so that fundamentally just becomes habitual for them which is, you know, what you would really strive to do. You know, I absolutely agree with that. I think if you're selling a product in an area that people aren't very passionate about, you know, it, it is quite hard to, to bring, build a big brand. I mean, I mean, a classic one is cars and insurance. I mean, people are very passionate about cars. You know, I mean, a Skoda and an Audi might be a very similar thing, but from a brand proposition, they're radically different. On the other hand, when you talk about car insurance, I mean, frankly, nobody really cares, do they? You just buy whatever's the cheapest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the car proposition is a really interesting model to look at. You're completely right. You you have the functional Skoda or you've got the the passionate Audi. One is going to give you the thrill of driving for the pleasure of it. One is just going to get you from A to B. I myself used to own a Skoda, so I support it. (laughs) Yes, Um, and I'm sure the margin um, on an Audi is much better. Probably indeed, yes. And then, and then I suppose, like, just coming back to your question, thinking about you know ones that I maybe not so hot on. This is more driven by my experience as a consumer. Um, one area that I've always really struggled with is that of sort of a slightly large and cumbersome, you know, the furniture. Furniture as a kind of a sector. I mean, I know you've recently moved flats and have sort of you know struggled with that whole buying process. But when I moved into my flat, we ended up having to order flat pack furniture because that could come in a week. Otherwise, it would take two months. I've toyed with the use of sort of, you know, augmented reality to try and envisage it within, you know, my flat or our living space. And I haven't really found a particularly slick process for one, the actual, you know, customer purchasing experience, but also the actual delivery of it and that user experience. So that's something that 
I'd be interested to sort of see if there's a solution there, but one that I may be not so enthusiastic about. No, and I, I certainly, obviously, furniture is one of the areas where I don't think anybody has has really gotten that to work properly in e-commerce. Um, I mean, obviously, as a consumer, when I order, I expect everything fast, and Amazon yeah. has, Amazon has trained me now basically to expect it next day. So if I if I log on and I'm told it's six weeks, twelve weeks, uh, that's not really on. But then obviously wearing my business hat, I can understand why furniture businesses can't hold enough stock <laughs> to be able to ship. Yeah, <laughs> to, uh, able to ship next day. So that probably is a sector that I, I join you certainly as an angel investor. I, I wouldn't be rushing to to write no. a check. So yeah, so you did just um, hint briefly at brand there. So. I mean, what what would be the sort of signs to you that that this is a great brand and this is something you'd like to get involved in? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really interesting question, and I suppose that there are, there are several key things here, but I'll just kind of highlight a few that I always like to think about when I first view a company. Um, you know, first and foremost, is the brand actually resolving a real need, or is it trying to solve an issue that isn't really there? Is it making a mountain out of a molehill? If it's the former, then great. If it's the latter, you know, as an investor, I'm going to really struggle to get on board with it. The brand also needs to have a clear purpose and mission. So is it enriching the customer's life beyond just a product or service? And is the brand able to clearly communicate that to the customer? And during a diligence process, one of the things that I always like to focus on is are the staff bought into that vision? Because, you know, your staff are the ones who are going out there delivering the service, communicating the message to the outside world and your consumers. So be that marketing, customer service, sales, people doing the picking and packing, the distribution center or manufacturing the actual good. So, you know, without that sense of belief and passion, it wouldn't be as an authentic a brand experience as you really require to build one of these brands that maybe, you know, have longevity or be sustainable. So that's key. Differentiation is another. So, you know, what is the USP of a brand? What are they doing that's different to the competitors out there? Does it have an amazing purchasing experience through an app or a call center? Is the unboxing something really memorable? So something that goes beyond just, can I get next day delivery, which is just outsourced to a third party provider? I think as well, it has to be customer centric offering. So does it offer exceptional customer experience? And is it also willing to listen to the customer and indeed if it has to innovate to what the customer really wants and needs? And I, I think guess, um, I guess one of the ways you, you might assess that is by looking at Trustpilot and, and the review sites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can look at Trustpilot, the review sites, although, um, you know, I think in, in some cases that might be a bit of a red herring. I um, I do always like to kind of order the product regularly myself just to see if there's also a consistency to it. I think that's really important when you're going through, you know, an investment process, which can last up to a few months because there can be a huge volatility of a product. So that sort of consistency is also key. Um, and then I think finally, and this is something I've been focusing on more recently, um, it's around community. So especially the power of the online community via the likes of Facebook. So this is a great place to actually, you know, build a brand. So how engaged are people with the brand? How passionate are they in their posts? Are they responding to other people's posts? Is there, you know, um, UGC that I can use on other platforms? UGC, user-generated content, just for yeah. people that aren't au fait. 
Yeah. So yeah. So have they, have they uploaded pictures of their meals that we can use? You know, is there authentic content there that I can use on Instagram, for example, or post on Snapchat? And then fundamentally, this could lead to the ideal, which is, can I get my consumer to sell my product for me via this community? So that's something that I like to look at. And I suppose when I first look at a brand, those are some of the things I really like to delve into. And if they can kind of tick those boxes, then we're in a pretty good place. Okay, so I've got I've got a great brand. I suppose the mechanic of selling, there's quite a division. And I, I will say I've tried both. Um, there's quite a division between just the ordinary one-off selling or subscription. So what, what are your feelings on the, the, the pros and cons of these? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And of course, there are both advantages and disadvantages to each. But, you know, it obviously depends on what product or service you're offering who's your customer base, et cetera. So from an investor's perspective, uh, you know, a, a simple and immediate one is from a subscription perspective. One of the advantages is an investor will view this as higher quality earnings because it's recurring. So, you know, they will view that as a better source of income. I think coming back to our point around, you know, the automotive purchase, if you're sort of, you know, the Skoda buyer maybe, and it's sort of a more functional purchase where there's not a really great, user experience to actually purchase it and it's more of a necessity so you know the razor heads and maybe washing up tablets having something like that just delivered to you on sort of a monthly basis for example where you would historically maybe only pick it up once you've run out so actually you're just going to end up being you know not clean shaven or have dirty clothes i think subscription work really well for those businesses however some of the disadvantages that come with that is what we've seen in some of our portfolio companies, which is you have to be so clear in communicating the fact that you are signing up to a subscription, you need to make the cancellation, you know, straightforward, because if someone forgets to cancel, or, you know, they didn't realize what they're getting themselves into, and then you suddenly take a sum of money out of their account, this can really break that sense of loyalty and trust between brand and the consumer. And trying to win that back is really, really challenging. And I think Parsleybox, which is, you know, a business we were involved in together that delivers ready meals to ambient ready meals that can last for up to six months in your cupboard for baby boom plus generation, is the prime example of where a subscription probably wouldn't work. Because I think, one, you're dealing with a consumer who is going to be 60, a lot of 60 plus, a lot of whom are sort of maybe in their 80s, so could be viewed as more vulnerable they maybe don't know what they're getting into. They could end up just getting, you know, endless supplies of meals being delivered. Having well, actually, money I, mean, I mean, Parsley Box actually go as far as to say in a lot of their adverts, no subscription. Um, yeah. I mean, that certainly is something I've, I mean, where I've run businesses that have done the same product as a subscription and not as a subscription, I've always found that it's roughly twice the CAC to recruit a customer um, on a subscription as it is to recruit a customer one-off. Because I think think people are just very, very cautious about it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, people um, people are cautious about it and they don't necessarily want to have that absolute commitment to it. And I think by providing the one-off, you put the control back into the consumer's hands. And I think, again, going back to Parsley Box, one of the things is, it's a product that can last for up to six months in your cupboard. That's one of the great USPs to it. Everyone's going to have a different consumption habit. And their consumption habit is not going to be the same week in, week out. Some weeks they may have one meal. Some weeks they may have five meals. You just can't create a subscription model that's going to suit that. Otherwise, they're going to be endlessly going in and out changing their subscription model. So you may as well just have one off. I agree. So I guess the, the other thing that 
um, e-commerce businesses tend to spend quite a lot of time doing is is working at how to recruit customers. Yeah. Um, so, which is easier said than done. So, what what sort of mix would you be looking for in marketing channels? Yeah, this is this is a really good question and something that we always like to front load when we're when we're looking at a business. We basically do not want to see any single reliance on one marketing channel. So, for example, Facebook, because we view that as just a single point of failure. You know, if anything were to happen to Facebook that would compromise that channel or your ability to recruit cost effectively, that could be detrimental to the business model. We ideally, in sort of when we invest around the Series A stage, would like to see, you know, a couple of channels in use that can cost effectively recruit customers, ideally across online and offline. So, you know, online being your Facebook, your PPC, TikTok, Snapchat, offline being um, newspapers, magazines, swaps, inserts, for example. And then maybe, you know, building that at a later date up towards TV, which is good from a you know customer acquisition perspective, but great from a brand and awareness perspective. And I think whenever we look at a business, we always think about exit and we like to work our way back. So we think, you know, what does a business have to look like for us to exit this to say private equity or trade? If you're a trade player coming in and you want to buy a business, to take it to the next level, you might be having to invest four or five times the amount in marketing to achieve that growth. Now, you as a business need to have a, a channel mix that can you know, cost-effectively recruit those customers and deliver the solid unit economics and return on investment they're looking for. But with a marketing spend that's four or five times higher than you're currently running at. So to have that kind of spread of channels is critical. And I think TV there is a great one because actually there... Andrew, you'll know better than I on this, but TV is a great one where you can invest a huge amount of money and is highly scalable. Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm an enormous fan of TV. And there is just that bit more of a barrier to entry. I mean, I mean I'm concerned, certainly as a marketing director, I, I would be concerned if my business was dependent on Google PPC. Yeah. Um, because I, I've been, I mean, I was actually running a business where PPC was a big part of the mix. And then one day, Nestle, one of the largest food company in the world, one of the largest food companies in the world, decided to compete against us in the PPC auction. So I was running quite a small business. My main competitor was one of the largest companies in the world, and we were in an auction. So it was fairly clear who was going to win it. So you, you came out on top of it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really, it's, 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 a bit, it's so easy for people just to pile into PPC, whereas getting a TV campaign working is... You know, there's just a little bit more of a, I guess, a bit more of a moat there. And as you say, you also have that issue on PPC that there only are a certain number of good searches, whereas TV is something that you can really, you know, you can really scale out. Absolutely. And I always feel like with TV as well, it's a great opportunity for you to really sort of get, get your brand's story out there and mission. So a really great channel and something we've been experimenting with and the businesses I'm involved in. And it, it's actually been proving quite successful, which is great. So, Josh, I know that one of your real passions is spreadsheets. <laughs> so um, could you just talk a little bit about lifetime value, um, why it's important and how you calculate it? Yeah, absolutely. As, as you say, that's a real passion of mine. <laughs> but look, look, firstly, like, why is lifetime value important? I mean, it, fundamentally, it addresses the key principle of how much profit and, you know, what is my payback period from this customer? So just on that payback period, you know, when we're looking at a business, you want to, you know, understand how long it's going to take until you start to make profit from that customer. So sub six months, 
that's a great place to be. Sub 12 months is a good place to be and 18 months is still workable. Uh, you know, when, when I'm looking at LTV, I think companies often present it as a re- on a revenue basis. So how much money am I going to get from this customer? What investors care about is it's at a contribution level. So how many pounds are you going to put in my pocket over your lifetime as one of my customers? So we always look at it on a contribution level. So after all your raw materials, picking, packing, shipping, credit card fees, and marketing costs. And the way in which we'll model it out is you'll obviously be able to you know, figure out using the AOV and then your contribution margin, how much you're making per order. And there's going to be probably a variability between the new and the repeat given offers to onboard new and then your repeat orders probably being higher. And then you'll look at sort of historic trends around retention and you know how many orders people would place. And from that, it's quite simple to kind of model out, you know, what you or you forecast a contribution LTV to be. But then again, this is not a static number, right? In your roadmap, you may be having, you know, a launch into new products, or you may be bringing manufacturing in-house, all of which is going to have kind of a knock-on impact. All this will fundamentally tell you is, do I have a business model today that can make money if people act the way they have historically acted? Yeah. And just to get in a little sales pitch, um, and obviously, if you're using machine labs, you can just go in and there's a cohort analysis table that will help you. Just to push the sales even further from an investor's perspective, if you do have that data to hand and neatly packaged up, it makes our jobs a lot easier. So <laughs> I would encourage you and implore you to get the product. <laughs> okay, so apart from um, lifetime value, what, what other metrics would you be looking at? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. And I think it's almost slightly loaded in a way, because with all of these metrics, what you what it's really important to recognize is you can't look at them in isolation. And I'll kind of come back yeah. to my key reason for why on that. But we always look at, obviously, you know, your CAC, so your cost of acquiring a customer. The volume of customers you onboard, it's important to look at, in certain instances, the cost of a repeat transaction. So, you know, it's typically in one-off businesses, how much is a marketing cost to get a repeat order? Average order value, um, that's for both new and repeat. And tied into the, the new would definitely be the kind of what offers are we putting forward to help onboard customers? Beyond that, it's really a focus on that kind of retention piece I discussed earlier. So, typically, how many boxes of people ordering and with this it's really important especially if you're a young business to you know consider the fact that the earlier cohorts are not necessarily the best representation of you know how future cohorts are going to perform because you've probably picked up friends and family as well as the kind of hardcore customers who have really been looking for your product so actually there's probably going to be a bit of a change and maybe a slight softening um, of that retention as you kind of move forward so that's always something to be mindful of and then I think the final piece on that one that I'm really interested in is actually the kind of particular demographics you're looking at. So we use mosaic profiling to be able to really drill down into what type of consumer um, is actually purchasing this. And that gives us a great understanding of really how big is the market, what penetration do we need to be able to achieve to deliver the forecast numbers. But really critically, it will tell us who are the best performing customers and this is this is really interesting because what this comes back to is with the point around cac if we look at cac in isolation if you're a cmo andrew i'm sure you could deliver me an excellent cac but you would sacrifice my average order value and my retention by saying okay well come on board 
and I'll give you 75% off your next reorders. You then have a terrible AOV. And then when your third order is finally up, a lot of people are probably just going to churn off because you probably just picked up a load of kind of voucher vultures who just fire out the next best deal. You can't just focus on one of these units or metrics. You have to look at them in the rounding. And it's very difficult to achieve great AOV, great CAG, great retention all at the same time. But I'm happy to trade off one for the other. So maybe if my CAC's a little higher, but actually I get really good AOV and really good retention, my payback period might still be in that six-month period. I'm happy with that. Yeah, well, I, I think about that marketing trilemma, you know, where you can only have two of the three things. Yeah, two of the three, yeah. Um, so you can have CAC, lifetime value, or volume, any two of these three. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, you, you know, you tend to start with CAC and LTV, you know, cheaply recruiting great customers. But the problem is the CEO of the business will say to you as the marketing director, we need more sales. So you have to increase volume. And at that point, you have to either sacrifice quality, effectively lifetime value, or um, spend more sacrificing CAC. And I think usually the answer to that question is it's CAC that you sacrifice because it's usually better to pay more to get good customers. Yeah, exactly. Get the right customers who are going to stick with you and keep on ordering. Fantastic. And I suppose, so let's just imagine we've followed all of this advice. We now have a wonderful domestic business. I mean, I guess the dream, particularly when you're in a market like uh, that, that maybe isn't that large. I mean, obviously for our listeners in the US, it's maybe slightly less important for them to go international because they're at, they've got such a giant domestic market as it is. <laughs> but for those of us in smaller European countries, we probably do reach a stage where we actually have to think about expanding. I mean, how important is is that to you as an investor and do you do you feel comfortable when people talk about going international yeah i mean um look it's a debate we've been having with you know, several of our portfolio companies and one of the key reasons you might want to take it international or indeed another way to do it is actually just by expanding your product verticals so you could maybe enter into new markets just within the uk by expanding what products you offer so that's there are a few ways of doing it but the key reason we always look to do it is yeah one it could just be that we want to grow a bigger business and actually we see the potential but for us again we're always thinking about exit and you have to leave some value on the table for you know, the next buyer to really say, actually, that's where I'm going to be able to make you know, my ROI. So I think, look, if you can maybe hypothetically prove it out, if we take Europe as an example, and you can prove it out in one European country and say, look, then you can roll out to a few other countries. You know, that could be good for sort of a trade player coming in. One of the things I would say about it, then, this is what we've experienced, and I know, I think, Andrew, you've experienced this as well, is it's very challenging to take companies abroad It costs more than you think. And there are so many things that you just wouldn't have thought about that turn out to be an issue. So, for example, one country we launched into, the returns rates were just so much higher than they were in the UK. Or another one we launched into actually did cash upon delivery as opposed to, you know, anything with a credit card. And it's just stuff we didn't know. So if you are going to do it, you need the appropriate firepower. But more critically, you need someone sat around the table who's been there, done it before, and probably has a bit of a bloody nose. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. I, I do also think some, some sectors are harder than others. I mean, I've spent most of my career in food and drink. And food and drink, well, you just need to visit different countries, and you can see that food and drink is something that's radically different. Very variable, yeah. Um, and, you know, with hindsight, my attempt maybe to launch the British ready meal into France <laughs> was... <laughs> 
you know, I tried to take cottage pie to the French, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was tricky. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, when you talk about leaving that thing for the, the, the acquirer, I do sometimes think that a great international strategy is better left on PowerPoint. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, look, it's, um, a lot of the businesses we see sort of the first time founders and obviously there's a you know there's an ambition and a desire to take it international however we do always you know in the first instance just caveat it with look at some point you know this is going to be very possible but there's still a lot to go after in the uk market i mean we've got businesses that are turning over sub a million pounds and saying well we need to go to the states you don't just focus on the uk the market's probably plenty big enough get that absolutely nailed and then consider your next move there's no need to rush it it really just now what you've got in the domestic market. Once that's done, done, really consider your options. Well, that was absolutely great. It's been a fantastic guest. Uh, thank you very much for the time. Thanks for having me. If you would like to make your Shopify store or other e-commerce store so successful that Josh would invest in it, please install Machine Labs. We'll guide you through our marketing playbook and help you rocket your sales. Thank you for listening and see you next week on The Joy of Marketing.